0: Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate, with your host, Broker Associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher.
1: Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have division manager for Contour Mortgage, Frank Mealy. Hey, Frank, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great, John. How are you?
1: Good, good, good. You know, before, one of the things, you know, you always uh, educate us with the various uh, mortgage products that are are out there, and one of them is asset utilization mortgages. But before we get there, let's talk about you for, because normally we don't, we cut right into it, and I just was curious about your background, what were you doing prior to mortgages?
2: Uh, that's a great question, John. Um, when I graduated, many things. <laughs> uh, no, but I did have a previous life, as I put it. Um, you know, when I graduated college, um, I went to Wall Street. Actually, um, you know, I graduated in the late '80s. You know, mm-hmm. Wall Street. You know, a lot of my friends and a lot of people were either going into law, or we were going, or people going into finance. You know, the group I was with. A right. uh, bunch of my friends. So um, I was recruited by American Express. I did an internship in college with American Express uh, in the late 80s. And then uh, I went right to Wall Street, uh, became a financial advisor through American Express. And then went through a p- couple of other firms, got into the investment banking arena. And I did that for 10 years. Um, oh. So I was working with the public and I was, I predominantly worked with uh people with retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was working with either people that were um, planning for retirement or people that were already retired, uh, Mm -hmm. which helped because um, it led me into banking uh, because when I was doing it for about 10 years, um, you know, that's when like the 2020, I mean, the 2000 bubble, the internet Mm -hmm. bubble, um, I I just got married. uh, We bought a house um, and I was given an opportunity uh, by a client that was running a bank. Uh, to be like a vice president at that bank. And the market was interesting in 2000 with oh, the yeah. internet bubble busting. Um, and my partner in financial services took over the business on the financial services side. And I've never looked back. I've been in retail banking ever since. I love working with the public, helping people. Um, and by working with retirement, you know, and individuals in retirement, it helped me start like the reverse mortgage division that I also run at the bank, you know, mm-hmm. that helps a lot of seniors and people, you know, age in place.
1: Well, um, if but I do not, a lot I of different talk about that later, too. I thought yes, maybe but it, were...
2: it's that that's my previous life, as I put it. Right. Um, and ever since then, I've been, you know, in retail banking for the last uh, 22 years.
1: Wow. Time flies, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. You blink <laughs> and uh, it's 22 years. 22 years
1: ago okay so another uh, silly question i don't know if that's silly but maybe did you have any mentors and, and anything that any advice that uh, they gave you that you still employ today like you know say in college or when you were in, in finance i know that's a
2: it's wow kind of no a- no no one's ever asked me that but it's a great question i mean that um yes i did actually when i wow. first got out of college and you know, i was a 22 year old wet behind the ears kid uh going on to wall street and uh like a 28-year-old or 30-year-old certified financial planner named Steve um, hired me. And I I sat in his office and he was my mentor. I learned everything about sales and being a professional and educating people. He always instilled in me education is key. I still use those those phrases today. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, become an expert in everything that you offer, you know, offer certain things that you know very well. So so the, the people you help serve understand it. And I still speak to him to this day. Um, like I said, when I left the financial services industry, I kept in touch with him. Um, and then when I got into banking, I've done some mortgages for his family and some of his clientele. And I still try to have lunch with him or play golf occasionally because he was my mentor. Um, and I tell every young person entering any industry, get a mentor. It's a great question, John, because you know life experience is, is important. And when you have a mentor, they can help you Uh, with that learning curve and really explain what's important you know because when you're young you're eager to learn everything and you want to try to absorb everything but he always pointed me in the right direction told me you know pay attention to certain things you know always you know you know learn your products very well and and explain them easily and uh i recommend everyone has a mentor in any any type of
1: industry it's helped your success also i'm sure
2: Oh, he's there are things that I learned back then, you know, when I was in my 20s that I still use to this day. Phrases, uh, things that he would tell me, things, you know, that that should be important. You know, don't sweat some of the smaller stuff. You can't please everybody, you know, but um, definitely it's it's stuck with me my entire my entire professional career.
1: Wow. Is he still uh, in the business? Is he still doing? Um, actually,
2: he, he did well enough that he retired. Uh, he's in his uh, late 60s now, right. uh, but he retired. He still has a a, a a, nice large financial services firm that his partners run. Uh, but I think he spends most of his time <laughs> playing golf in Florida.
1: Oh, jeez. <laughs> do you want to do that uh, when you come to? You, you're still a young guy. You know, but.
2: Uh, I love golf. And we were just joking about it. You know, I mean, you were talking previously about golf. And uh, I like to, you know, I don't know about, you know, I, I, I've been down to Florida in July and August and nothing against any Floridian listeners. Right. Uh, I love the state of Florida. I'm just not used to that high humidity in the, right. in the summer and months, especially um, I can definitely in the see myself. Yeah, I can definitely see myself being somewhere down south, you right. know, driving around in a golf cart, relaxing and playing golf. Yes.
1: Right. Okay, <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, let's talk about asset utilization mortgages. What are they and how do how does one qualify for one?
2: Okay, this is something your listeners may be very interested in. Okay, because uh, we're in a very unique market right now. Uh, obviously, with rates increasing, interest rates were going or have been going up. Uh, will they continue? We'll we'll have to see that. Um, but it, it brings to light a lot of investors and a lot of people trying to buy homes, especially on the East End, where you're a specialist, um, or in the higher net worth neighborhoods, or these loans can be used anywhere, mm-hmm. but I just find I get a lot of people out on the East end that want to look at these loans because it's it's a loan program, you know, asset utilization. It's, it's to, 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 to put it simply, it's, with, it's, it's asset-based lending. So it used to be around in the 80s where banks would just look at the assets of the individual and then use that as collateral. We're not using it as collateral. But we're using it where we don't have to show any. You don't basically. You don't need a job, and you don't need earned income. Hmm. I know that sounds funny, you know, especially from a banker. Right. But these are specific asset utilization programs where a typical situation is: I'll get a family where they have a lot of assets. Not real estate, I'm talking about um, liquid assets. So between their bank accounts- Are you
1: talking about like stocks?
2: Yes, you know, uh, it could be money in the bank, you know, money market, mutual funds, CDs, uh, investment accounts, IRAs. Um, So we look at all of those assets. And then there's a formula that the bank uses. we also allow, which I wanted to start with, uh, because a lot of this is the hot topic right now, but we also allow Bitcoin and crypto assets, because hmm. I know that's a hot topic right now, and everyone's looking at crypto assets and Bitcoin. So the way it works is we take the total asset base. Let's use for and an I example. I,
1: I don't mean to interrupt, but no, just when you brought in uh, the idea of crypto and, and Bitcoin, how do you measure that as a? A stable currency when it keeps fluctuating. So in other words, today, you do your, your calculation based upon, we'll say a million dollars in Bitcoin. Okay, and tomorrow, you know, it drops. And now all of a sudden, it's uh, three quarters of a million. Which it has. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> I'm not laughing. I mean, I, aren't I'm you not, not little, laughing. Aren't you a little uh, concerned about that?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, but that's a great question, though, because what I was just going to lead into is that's how we do the calculation. If if a, if a family has, um, let's just use two million as an example. Right. So a family has two million dollars in their IRAs and their investment accounts with Merrill Lynch, let's say, or Smith Barney. Okay, and. What we use is we can use 90% of the, of the $2 million. So that would bring it to a million eight. So that's the, the, historically in you know, IRAs or in investment accounts, there's a diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna discount it, so we'll use 90%. So that'll bring it to a million eight. And then we have a calculation that the bank uses And then we can basically use that million eight and give them 30,000 a month of income. So we use the actual 30,000 as their monthly income. Now they're not liquidating the investments. They don't have to make us a beneficiary of the investments like some banks do. So we just use that formula. Now, if it's crypto assets, let's use the same example. They have $2 million in Bitcoin. We're gonna only use 40% of the present market value. See what I mean? So we're kind of discounting the crypto. So even if it
1: drops a half, you're still. Yeah, because
2: we're discounting it much more because we understand the volatility and that there's not much regulation right now in that crypto space. Um, and we're going to look at actually the account value when they apply for the loan. But we're actually going to adjust that again at the closing. If during the 30 days, I'd say those assets deep you know, went down in value or up in value. So by the time we're closing the loan, if it's crypto assets, we're gonna use 40%. So with that same 2 million, right? Mm -hmm. That the family was able to have 30,000 a month of income. Right. That same 2 million in crypto would give them 13,300 of monthly income. Okay. And then it's basically from that point, it's the same as any other mortgage. We're using that income on a monthly basis. We're still calculating debt to income ratios, which is just you know debts that the family has on their credit report, the new mortgage payment divided into that monthly income. And then at that point, we allow one to four family homes, uh, condos are allowed, uh, we even approve co-ops, which we see a lot in the New York City metropolitan yeah. area. Uh, these could be done, a lot of them are done as investment properties you know, cause a lot of them are investors or they might have multiple homes. The only thing with the investment side is we can't do the co-ops uh, because there's a lot of regulations with co-ops, with the boards, with subleasing. So they usually want the owner to occupy the
1: premises. But, so, but we but can a do- A so probably multiple. is easier, right? A condo you would do as compared- Oh to
2: yeah, no, home. we do condos a lot. Our typical family that gives us a call is, is usually someone you know, that has maybe multiple properties uh, they have a property on the East End where they want to either extract money, they want to do a cash out, they want you know to buy other properties,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, or they're looking to just buy a new you know home to, to as an investment for Airbnb, which is very popular, um, or just that second home, you know. Or, you, or I'll get the attorney that's based in New York City that's looking to buy his first summer home, you know, vacation home in in the Hamptons, let's say, or in Montauk, um, or anywhere Say like Harbor, any of the East okay. End. Man. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's COVID's affected a lot of people. So I bring that up because some people right now are in between jobs or, you know, some people have been downsized and they're professionals and they have the money, they have the assets. You know, they just don't have that third piece, which is the job, right. you know. So, you know, the, the banks that offer these programs like us, you know, had to come up with a way, in my opinion, of still offering these types of programs, you know, so, but it is credit driven, you know, we can go as low as a 660, so a 660 credit score. Mm-hmm. But I find the average client that u- uses these asset utilization Especially loans, right. I have a credit score of like 730 right. to 850. So they're usually high credit individuals, high assets. It's just either they're not showing their income or their tax returns showing. I had a client recently that had a, a very large loss that carry over for five years. So he was making a lot of money, but his tax returns were showing negative numbers, you know, so he's not going to get traditional financing. So then we have these options, you know, to help people buy the homes using as rentals or as primary residence.
1: Gotcha. Understood. So if someone had uh, some more questions for you, because that's a fascinating uh, uh, product there. uh, Frank, how could they get in touch with you?
2: Very simple. I have a toll-free number that comes right to my desk. I I answer them and I'll answer all their questions. That's 888-954-7463. Once again, the number is 888-954-7463.
1: Fantastic. Frank Mealy, it's been a pleasure as always to have you on the program. This is John Christopher, Your host for real-life broadcasting on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM, right here in the wonderful village of Southampton. So please stay where you are, since we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Real Life. This is John Christopher, and today we're going south of the Mason-Dixon line down to the Music City. That's Nashville, Tennessee. And we are lucky enough to have one of the top agents in Nashville, Carl Jacobson. Carl, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So um, there was a before we talk about population surge in Nashville and how it's affecting the real estate market, let's learn a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up?
3: I actually grew up in New York City, so I was uh, I was born in Manhattan, but raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and then um, spent a little bit of time in Pennsylvania for college, but ended up back on Wall Street uh, in in Manhattan. Wow!
1: So, did you spend any time in, on Wall Street?
3: I did, yeah. So, I actually worked at Goldman Sachs for uh, a little over eight years in, in a couple of different roles. I started my career. In, um, in their Philadelphia office, actually working for in uh, sales for the private bank. So I worked on a, on a smaller team that covered about 35 to 40 uh, ultra high net worth individuals on a cross asset basis. And then I did that for about two years. And then I was a derivatives trader and portfolio manager uh, supporting the private client business in New York for a little over six years.
1: So what happened? You uh, retired and got into real estate. This, <laughs> it's like I did. I did. So my
3: path down. to real estate is a little bit, uh, I guess, unusual. But um, I, uh, I come from a real estate family. So my dad was an investor and a and a broker in New York for over forty years. So I've been going to you know, see investment property since I could walk and uh, have, been, have been on more than my fair share of uh, uh, showings and whatnot to see different properties. So uh, very much you know, kind of grew up around the environment of real estate, always kind of had an interest and a knack for it. And then I think following you know, my departure from Wall Street, which was you know, certainly a great foundation of you know, business education, business skills, if you will, right. uh, knew that this was kind
1: of the direction I wanted to move in. Wow. That is interesting. So how did you get to Nashville from uh, New York?
3: So I always tell people it's kind of a a culmination of of personal and professional. So I knew, um, you know, personally, having been born and raised in New York, I love the city and think that it has so much to offer, but was just at a point in my life where I was looking to get a little bit more space. I wanted a little bit more breathing room, um, things that are a little bit hard to come by when you live in lower Manhattan. Um, So I think from that perspective, it was just kind of the right time for me um, personally but then, professionally, I you know was was certainly looking to change directions a little bit. Having worked on Wall Street, I think again I had a great experience there and, and learned so much. But just was really looking to kind of build something of my own. And, and as real estate agents, you know, we're, we're all certainly kind of independent contractors in that, right. Running our own businesses. And that was something that certainly appealed to me. And I think I was at the right stage of my career had been around the track a couple of times, if you will. Um, And uh, you know, I think that lends itself to, or that lends credibility to any sort of business that you're going to be starting on your own. And I think that that was all um, helpful in terms of me navigating this next phase or next chapter of of my professional life.
1: So how long have you been down in uh, Nashville?
3: I have been to Nashville just about a year now, so it's uh, relatively recent, um, but uh, I love it. I think that it's, um, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, certainly checked all the boxes for me. I think the people down here, what they say about Southern hospitality is certainly true. Um, I, I think the people down here have been super warm and welcoming, and the city itself is is just a great place to, to live and, and work. So I, I really couldn't be more fortunate.
1: That's fabulous. Yeah. Um- I think you read the uh, recent article in the Wall Street Journal stating that the, you know, the population surge is making it unaffordable for many residents in Nashville. What are your thoughts about that? And are people leaving Nashville? So
3: I would say that affordability and and affordable housing is certainly top of mind for a lot of the state and local leaders here. And I think that it's something, uh, you know, I know there's conversations that are happening amongst greater Nashville realtors, which is kind of the local chapter of of, um, the National Association of Realtors here locally in in Tennessee and Nashville. Um, So there's certainly conversations that are being had about it because I mean, it's it's certainly no secret that the price appreciation that we've witnessed in Middle Tennessee and, and in the greater Nashville area has been pretty astronomical over the last ten years, but even more specifically, I would say over the last you know five years, even even in from that eighteen thirty six months. I mean, year over year, there are pockets of of the city here that are up you know forty percent, um, which you know certainly those are those are pretty large numbers when when you kind of put that into context. And I think that you know that does change the dynamic of who's you know able to purchase certain homes what the affordability looks like for you know the average american and i think there is, um, you know, I, I, there are definitely people that are getting priced out of the market down here, but I think the demand certainly remains pretty robust, and a lot of that is being driven by the out-of-state buyers that we have um, coming into Tennessee. And the, some of the things that I always tell people is that you know Tennessee is certainly a very business-friendly state. There's no state income tax here, so I think all of that from an economics perspective certainly contributes to to kind of everybody's bottom line, but. Um, You know, affordable housing is certainly something that I think the city and state is going to have to focus on, um, you know, over the coming months and years. Well,
1: it's like the similar thing that we have here in the Hamptons is that uh, uh, one of the problems is is that many of the uh, people that take care of the properties cannot live out here. You know, so we have what we call a a trade parade that every day coming and going um, service people are coming here and it's just, you know, And affordable housing is like, you know, there's a lot of people with the NIMBY concept, you know, not in my backyard. Yeah. uh, That's starting to change a little bit. Um, Where do you think- think Go ahead, I'm
3: sorry. No, No, I was gonna say, I I, I would just echo that. And I think that there's, you know, certainly, um, I've had more than one conversation with folks that even bought as recently as, you know, five or six years ago here in Nashville, that if they were in the market today, actually couldn't afford to buy their own home anymore because that's how rapidly the price appreciation that we've seen in the city has become. And, you know, that obviously is going to take its take its toll. But, um, you know, I think, again, all of this is relative, and I think that the concept of affordability is relative, too, because what people are paying per square foot in you know, places like California and New York, were certainly not at those price, th- price thresholds at this point here in Nashville. And I think, you know, what was, you know, what's affordable to them is certainly going to be a different benchmark than, you know, what may be affordable to somebody that's from a more rural part of America.
1: Right, 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 right. Speaking of which, do you think uh, where do you see a lot of people coming from California and, and New York?
3: Yeah, those are the two big ones, I would say, Um, you know, kind of the West Coast in general. So, you know, multiple cities throughout California, whether it be San Francisco or Los Angeles. And then um, the Northeast New York is is a popular destination uh, or a popular feeder market for us as well. And then I would also say that Chicago, um, those kind of those three, I would say, round out a good chunk of, of the influx of the population that we've seen. But we're, we're certainly seeing people from all over the country. And I think, again, just speaks to the lifestyle and, and environment that Tennessee can offer and and how it's become so appealing for, for a lot of people.
1: Right, right. Well, I, I can see why it would be appealing for New Yorkers, especially from the uh, tax perspective. You know?
3: <laughs> yes, sure very, appealing. very,
1: very much. <laughs> very much so, right? <laughs> Are there any bidding wars going on?
3: Yes, um, I, I would definitely say, you know, over the last... Um, you know, a few years in particular, I would say that nearly every house that's come to market, you're you're seeing a multiple offer scenario. And I mean, there's definitely been, you know, uh, over the le- course of the last year where things have been particularly crazy, um, you know, 15, 20 offers on a property is not uncommon by any oh. stretch. And I think, you know, you're seeing some of these properties, particularly in- Are you they, know,
1: uh, you know, um, jumping ahead of each other? In other words, 15 to 20 offers- Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you guys have the uh, the situation when you put a bid in that you can have uh, an open bidding process? In other words, if you have a client, uh, a buyer, and he says, "Just okay, here's my cutoff point." Do you have many of those type of uh, uh, bidders?
3: Yeah, I think that escalation clauses have certainly, you know, that kind of is exactly what you're alluding to there, where you're kind of going to set a cap on the price that you're willing to pay because you know that the market is super competitive and that you have to kind of put your best foot forward. Um, They have been used um, pretty readily um, amongst a wide variety of buyers at different price points. And, you know, I think that's a function of the market that we're in. There's you know, very low inventory here in the Middle Tennessee area, and, and there's an overwhelming amount of demand, which, again, I, I, over the last few years has certainly contributed to the price appreciation that we've seen, but also just the level of competition in the market. You know, we're seeing homes and again, not just in multiple offer scenarios, but it's multiple offer scenarios where they could be, you know, they could close several hundred thousand dollars over asking price i mean there's there's properties i've seen go six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars over asking price which you know in, in a normal market environment would be pretty unheard of and i think you know, pre-pandemic i think even for the city here would be pretty unheard of because you're just not going to see that kind of um that kind of activity but um you know i think again just all a function of of the supply and demand issues that we're seeing here locally
1: what kind of advice uh, do you give uh, first-time uh, buyers that are coming into the market? Uh, for example, do you have many people that will put bids in sight unseen on properties, like they're they're in New York or they're in California someplace, and you know the fly back and forth is a little taxing? Um, do do they do you have some of those buyers that that say, um, Carl, you know, just find me something, sh- look at the pictures. You do uh, FaceTime, and they say, "Fine, let's let's yep. go for
3: it." You, you you nailed it. I mean, I think that given. You know, given the inflow of people and where they're coming from, obviously being here to you know, kind of walk them through and handhold them in the process live and in person here in Nashville is is not always possible given you know given the destinations where they're coming from. So yeah, there certainly has been um, a, a, an increase in sight unseen offers, and I think that the the you know age of the FaceTime uh, showing is is certainly um, in, in full full bloom. So it's uh, that that's definitely you know something that we've seen quite a bit of here in in the Nashville market. And there's properties that, you know, people will submit offers on purely based on the pictures. I've seen sight unseen offers where they haven't even seen it through a FaceTime showing and they've just submitted an offer completely sight unseen based on the pictures, because, you know, I think there's people that are moving here and and it's, um, you know, almost an acting out of desperation because it's been such a strenuous and arduous process to find a home because they keep losing out on properties that they really love And, you know, that, that obviously takes a toll on buyers. And I think that as you know, I look at my role as an agent as to kind of keep things in perspective. I always use an analogy that, you know, if, if we're, you know, we're all on a ship together, we're all on a boat together. My job is to kind of be the ballast of the boat to kind of keep things on an even keel and and make sure that we're kind of moving in the right direction and not get too emotional one way or the other. Um, And, and I think that all of that, you know, is, is, is more difficult in an environment where you have you know such um, uh, ferocious competition as as what we've been seeing. But you know I think that it all comes back to you know you mentioned the advice that I would give to first time home buyers. I think what it all really comes back to for me is, and there's a reason that it's a common phrase in real estate, location, location, location. I mean, it's where there's smoke, there's fire. And I think that it's, that is the most critical piece of, of the pie. And I think one of the things that I'll tell clients is that we can always change the interior of the house. You can change the exterior of the house the one thing that we cannot change is the location. So making sure that we nail that down um, and it's in the right area, it's the right place that you want to be, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, that's what it really all comes back to. And I often will start the conversation with buyers by saying, you know, we want to make sure that we don't run into a scenario where, you know, you get caught up in the you know brand new finishes, the the marble countertops, all of the stuff that's, you know, really appealing to a lot of people, but it's not the location that you want. And I think that that, that's where the conversation has to start.
1: Right. Well, you know what? I, I can't believe the time has gone by so quickly. So how can someone get in touch with you, Carl, if they have any further questions?
3: Sure. So um, my, the, the local brokerage and affiliate that I work with at Sotheby's here is Zeitlin Sotheby's International Realty. Um, my email address is carl.jacobson at Zeitlin.com. If you, if you just Google Zeitlin, um, you know, one of the, the web, first websites that'll come up will be the, the brokerage's website. And my contact information is there and you know, they, can, they can find all of my, uh, my details there as well.
1: That's fantastic. Carl, it's been a pleasure. This is John Christopher for Real Life on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3. Thank you again for listening and be sure to have an awesome journey.
0: You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIW-FM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio.